Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a Hoover Fellow and your co-host. And today, my co-host, normal co-host, John Yu, is not about these precincts. It's a little too early for him to be taping the Pacific Century because we're actually moving all the way over to London today. And we are thrilled, and I'm speaking for John and, and myself, we are thrilled to welcome Britain's first sea lord, Admiral Tony Radican, to the Pacific Century. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, sailing solo on this one, but with the Admiral talking about uh, the Royal Navy and its role in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, before I turn to the Admiral, I just want to introduce him to our audience. Um, Tony Radican, as I mentioned, is the first Sea Lord and Chief of the Naval Staff. He took that position in June of 2019, so not even a year old. Uh, he was commissioned in 1990, and I believe is, is actually was originally trained as a barrister, uh, but his opportunity Operational service has been uh, with the Iran-Iraq tanker war, security duties in the Falklands, uh, with NATO, uh, and many joint and defense roles. Uh, he's commanded from lieutenant to rear admiral ashore, afloat, and with international forces. Now, this includes Her Majesty's ship Blazer, the Southampton URNU, HMS Norfolk, the naval training team in Iraq, the Iraqi Maritime Task Force, uh, Portsmouth Naval Base, and Commander of UK Maritime Forces. He was also the head of NATO's High Readiness Maritime Component Commander. Um, so, Admiral Radikin, First Sea Lord, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks very much, Misha. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Well, we're, we're thrilled to be able to talk with you. Um, there's so much we could talk about in terms of the UK. Uh, first of all, the, the Royal Navy's traditions, its history, of course, the role in Europe and uh, the Prime Minister's recent statements uh, that I'm, I'm sure you were very happy accompanied a significant budget boost, but was to make Britain uh, the primary naval power in Europe again. But we want to talk really about the Indo-Pacific and, and Asia. And uh, it is an area in which the Royal Navy has, of course, centuries of experience, uh, but also in, in recent decades has had somewhat of, of less of a profile, but that's about to change. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit a, about what the Royal Navy's interests are in the Indo-Pacific and the plans you have, but I'd like to start before that with a bigger question, one I've actually heard you talk about before, which is the relationship and indeed in some ways the competition between the maritime democracies and the continental autocracies, and, and your view of where the Royal Navy fits in with that. So, Misha, I've referred to maritime democracies and Eurasian autocracies just as, as one of many views in terms of how we might look at the world. So there's the, there's the classic East-West uh, ideologies, there's North-South, there are these power blocks, there's the trading blocks, I think these days are even the sort of digital, the idea of digital continents. And I just, I just think they're helpful for all of us in trying to understand the world better. And, and, and so I, I think that's just one of a number of frames for us to view the world. And sometimes I think it's helpful to go beyond pure geography in order to try to understand the world better. And, and I think the, the maritime democracy piece, for me, the, I suppose from a sailor's perspective, the piece that's interesting is that nations are investing in their maritime. And I think we're seeing that 
all over the world, whether it's in your own country with America, whether it's across the channel in terms of France, in, in Europe, the UK, you touched on it. Um, and then if I go further east, I look at Australia and Japan and India. And then if I also, going back to your podcast and, and, and what I think you cover, it's this sense that we describe this enormous area of the world of the Indo-Pacific through a maritime framework. And, and I sort of unashamedly celebrate that in the same way that when we go to Europe, we describe our security construct as the North Atlantic and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And, and so yeah, in a world where we sometimes worry about sea blindness, actually, there's a lot of sea awareness. And I think it's a very accurate way of looking at the world. And it's one that obviously I celebrate. So as a um, as a trading nation, which Britain, of course, has been since since time immemorial, um, it, as it becomes uh, this democracy, oh, obviously, no democracies exist, you know, thousands and, and even hundreds of years ago. Is there something particular, do you think, about the nature of a trading state that lends it towards the, the democratic side of the political spectrum? So I possibly feel this more acutely as somebody who comes from a maritime island trading nation with a history of democracy. And then if I look at the world through a, through a, through a sailor's lens, and if I then observe that 75% of the world is ocean, and then I go all the way back to the early 1600s and this magnificent Dutch legal philosopher called Grotius, who wrote a book called Mare Liberum, and who then instigated this phenomenal legal paradigm that we call the high seas, that allows the whole world to go onto the high seas and to partake in lawful activity and to then use those high seas to transit. And back to your original point, I think that 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 high seas legal paradigm is probably fundamental to allow nations to then be able to trade with each other. And to be able to trade successfully, I think quite often you have to have a shared appreciation of what the rules are and a shared understanding as well as the intent to, to be able to trade with each other. And then if I come all the way back to my current job, and as the head of a navy, I would also observe that navies follow trade and trade follows navies. And that, that to me, is the full circle. And is that something that is more acute with democracies or not? I'm less certain. But what I would say is that the whole world and every nation is a maritime trading nation. And, and I borrow that phrase from a previous Indian head of Navy who said that the world that we're in these days, even the most landlocked country actually relies on its prosperity and survival based on the maritime trade that goes around the world. So that, that's, that's sort of a philosophy or um, an outlook which, which to me helps to describe the world that we're in. 
So for for Britain, of course, uh, living in a world that is now, uh, from the economic perspective, uh, centralized around East Asia, uh, Japan, the Koreas, or Korea, uh, and of course China and Taiwan and, and other trading partners, um, that that presence is is crucial. And, and of course, you are um, uh, having to. Uh, unlike the United States, which has a Pacific coastline and direct access to the Pacific Ocean, it, it's a much more complicated uh, environment uh, in order to maintain maintain presence. And and some would argue it, it became increasingly difficult for Britain after 1970 or so and the withdrawal west of Suez, the, the closing down of of uh, naval bases uh, and the ending of, of certain security relationships, though not all of them, in the Indo-Pacific. Could you talk to us a little bit about the return of the Royal Navy, and, and of course, more broadly, Britain, but the return of the Royal Navy to the Indo-Pacific, how it fits in with current relationships such as the Five Powers Defense uh, Act uh, and and the like. Um, what What is it that uh, the Royal Navy seeks to do in, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and and why should Britain play a role when you know the U.S. is there and Japan is there and Australia is there? So in some ways, I think the Royal Navy has never left the Indo-Pacific, but I'll I'll come back to that. I think we as military chiefs, we all provide options to government. And at the moment, I'm very conscious that we are awaiting our integrated review, which will speak to our security and foreign policy. And that is due out in the middle of March. And I think that that's, that's more accurately going to describe our lay down, our posture, how we, uh, how, we, how we go out into the world and, and what, what is the UK foreign policy post having left the EU? And, and, and you've heard the Foreign Secretary talk about a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. I say that we've never left because in a way we've, we've, traded, we've traded for centuries and centuries all the way through the Indo-Pacific. We've got Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean. I recognise your point about um, the, 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 the east of Suez moment uh, and that sort of returning back to, to, to the Euro-Atlantic. And I think the integrated review is anticipated to, cons- to say that we will continue to be strong in the Euro-Atlantic. We will continue to have NATO as the bedrock of our security structures. But I also think that in this world where we see increasing competition and when we see that the trading blocks of the world are shifting further east and this amazing Indo-Pacific economic hub, and back to my point about navies follow trade, trade follows navies, then it's probably unsurprising that we build on what we've already got, the, the British Indian Ocean Territories of Diego Garcia. Our, our, our lay down in Bahrain and the base that was that's been established there in the last few years. If you come further around, our real closeness to Oman and our involvement with an enormous port that's been built on the Indian Ocean in Duckham, and and does that become a, a hub for for UK forces? And then we've got these fantastic relationships, whether it's in East Africa or across to. India and this phenomenal Indian economy. And then if you go further east, we've always had uh, a a strong relationship and a military footprint in Singapore. We've then got Brunei. 
we've obviously got the, the 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 enduring relationship that we've always had with Hong Kong, and then we've got these amazing partnerships with countries like Japan and Australia. And I think as we look at the integrated review, and if we have a foreign secretary and a government that is looking to make a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, then I'm obliged to say these might be some of the options that are available to ministers to, 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 to act upon and to direct us. And that's why I think we're having a conversation about the inaugural carrier deployment and how far east does it go and who are the partners with that. I've got uh, a great relationship with Japan and we've just signed an agreement for us to work more closely together. I look to Australia and Australia is buying a British designed frigate, which we call the Type 26, Australia calls the Hunter class. We think it's, the, it's going to be the best anti-submarine warfare frigate in the world. Canada is also buying the same frigate. So that makes a total of 32 ships between us where we can work together both in terms of building those ships, but then also how do we employ those ships together as, as partners and allies. And then we also are growing the Royal Navy. So we're growing the Royal Navy by quite a substantial size. Between 2015 and 2025, it grows in tonnage terms by nearly 30%. And you touched on the Prime Minister's announcement in November, where he confirmed support shipping for our carriers. He confirmed a new class of frigate. He confirmed that we would get eight Type 26 frigates, these high-end ASW ships. That then gives an opportunity as to how we might employ those. And, and are there opportunities for government to consider whether or not there are a few more ships stationed further east? And then what does that look like? Is that something that we do immediately? And then do we, as our new frigates start to come to fruition in the mid-2020s, does that then start to be part of how we employ those frigates? So that's the conversation that's ongoing. And that's the opportunity that we have with a growing navy that is now a, a carrier strike navy as to how government wants to best employ us. So uh, just a, two clarifications. One is I misspoke. It's the five power defense arrangements, not the five power uh, defense uh, act or, or whatever I called it. And that is between the UK, Australia, Malaysia, New Zealand, and Singapore. So there, there has been a continued security presence, defense cooperation since the 1970s, uh, and one that, that can certainly, uh, be built on. And then for our, our, uh, listeners who are not as familiar with the concept of the integrated review, uh, the U.S., it's essentially what the U.S. would do with a national security strategy. And in, in a way, it's, it's, it's broad. It is, uh, it is about foreign policy. It's about security policy. It's about development. Uh, it, it comes together under the prime minister's office and it will guide um, both strategy and planning going going forward, um, but of course the headlines. Uh, you know, we all focus on on the biggest the biggest ships and the most impressive pieces of equipment, and that's that's the new uh, aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, and of course there's a second one HMS Prince of Wales. Um, but we've been waiting uh, for a few years for uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth to get to uh, the Pacific, and uh, I, I know that the the full decisions haven't been made, um, but there was early talk and. And, and a, a prior defense secretary, Gavin Williamson, talked about this in terms of freedom of navigation, South China Sea cooperation. Um, I believe it's going to have on the voyage uh, Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps F-35s. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what you hope Queen Elizabeth will do in the region. Uh, and, you know, let's be honest about it. Who, who's not going to be happy about that? And how do, you, how do you respond to that? So I think the detail of that deployment, which is later this year, and you're right, it's a big moment. Um, it's a big moment because we become a carrier strike Navy again with what we're calling a fifth generation aircraft carrier to marry up with these magnificent fifth generation aircraft F-35s. And it's also, again, this phenomenal act of a U.S. Marine Corps squadron embarked with a U.K. squadron of both Royal Navy and Royal Air Force jets. And then and then we're stepping out on the world. The prime minister has referred to this deployment as the embodiment of global Britain, as, as, as a tangible expression of how we go out into the world. And so we'll be looking to, to do that with our NATO allies um, and operate with our NATO allies in the Mediterranean. There's then a debate about how far east it goes. So into the Indian Ocean. And my expectation is that we'll be able to work with India, Australia, Japan, and of course, our our, our, our phenomenal uh, maritime ally, uh, the US Navy. And then as we go further east, I think the, the conversation with government is is sort of several fold. There are some sort of um, essential elements to this, which is it's more than military capability. Yes, we are demonstrating that we've become a carrier strike nation again, and we want to prove that capability, and we want to do that alongside our allies and partners. But equally, this is about growing our nation's prosperity, responding to that economic hub in the Indo-Pacific, the importance of India, the importance of Singapore, um, a, a phenomenal uh, partnership that, that I mentioned before that we have with Japan and Australia. And then I think that then starts to determine for ministers where the deployment actually goes and how far east it goes. And, 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 and your point about freedom of navigation, again, I go back to Grotius and this this fundamental uh, principle, the, the legal paradigm of the high seas. And I think for the UK, as, as a, a maritime island trading nation, as a you know, UN Security Council member, as a country that seeks to follow international rules and fulfil our responsibilities and obligations, we will look to continue to go around the world and sail the high seas as part of lawful activity and do that in a steadfastly normal way. And I think there's nothing unusual about that. I think the piece that's unusual is when the world starts to have a debate around whether or not large tracts of the ocean are no longer accessible for other nations going about their lawful activity. And, 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 and so I see that as a sort of fundamental norm of the UK's position in the world alongside many of our uh, sort of other um, friends and partners and allies. Um, so it, I, and, and I, the, the, the description that you're sort of hinting at, that somehow we're going out in the world uh, to be confrontational, could not be further than the truth. I think this is, uh, this is us going out in the world um, as this maritime island trading nation, 
as ever, going out to trade with the world and to be a good partner and ally to those nations that we're close to and and to be an expression of our values and interests. And, 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 and that's that to me is what this is all about. And it will be the government that will direct the UK defence, our chief of defence staff, and me responding as the head of the Navy, but alongside the head of the Air Force, about how we then take this deployment forward. So certainly, I think in, in Washington, and, and I would think in Tokyo and, and Canberra and the like, there's there's no thought that, you know, Britain is, is coming out to be confrontational. You know, our, our view is exactly, I think, what you have said, which is uh, freedom of navigation, freedom of the high seas, cooperation among trading nations and maritime nations. I think there may be other capitals in the region that would see it potentially as confrontational. But, you know, there may be some people thinking, well, why, why again, it, it all sounds fine, but why would Britain actually risk getting involved in the region? And, and uh, people may not know that, of course, uh, in addition to the British Indian Ocean Territory, I mean, there's something like 1.6 million overseas Britain Britons in the region. Uh, there are other territories. And of course, there's the Commonwealth and, and the relations among the Commonwealth. So actually, when the US continually, and I think rightfully talks about itself as a Pacific power, um, Britain is also an Indo- Pacific power, and, and in some ways in a different part of it than we are in the Indian Ocean and sort of a southern tier. So there's an enormous amount that that Britain can do. Um, what, you know, have you had conversations with your Chinese counterparts about this? Have you, do you talk with them and do you talk with them about the things, the, the, um, the, the values that you just expressed in terms of freedom of navigation? And, and how do they look at not just a Britain talking about getting back involved, but sending its mo- its new flagship uh, and its most advanced aircraft carrier into the region? So our foreign office and the FCDO has, has, has a, an ongoing and regular dialogue with, with, with China about this issue and, and all kinds of issues. So I, I, I don't have uh, a direct dialogue myself, and I don't think we should, we should read anything into that uh, whatsoever. Um, I've come across Chinese generals at international conferences, and I have um, come across the, the PLA uh, Navy at international conferences. My fleet commander has visited China. Uh, we've had UK ships visit China. Um, we have a relationship whereby we are trading with, with China. We have some things which we have different views, and I think that's, that's, um, that's percolated through our foreign office and, and, and ministers. And I come back to your description of our interest in the region. And then in, in a way, Misha, there's a little bit backward looking. Um, yes, we've got historic ties. But I would project forwards and I would describe where we are now with these fantastic partners and allies that we have in the region. And then I would also project forwards to you know, some, some of the economic surveys of that, that by 2040, 50% of the world's GDP will be anchored in the, in, in the, in the Indo-Pacific. And, and therefore, the UK outlook as a P5 member, as a, a faithful ally to some of some of the you know, to partners who share the same values and interests in the world, and as a trading nation, that's that's our interest 
in in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and and that's uh, and, and I think that we have a, a foreign office that's that seeks to articulate that all the time, and that includes to our partners and allies for reassurance. And I think it also is for clarity with China as to this is this is our our interest in in the Indo-Pacific, and and this is the nation that we are, and that we're confident about being that nation, uh, and we want to express our values and interests and be really clear about it. So I that 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 that's how I would put it. I'd like to ask you uh, about the quad uh, finishing up. I know we're we're running out of time, though. This is wonderful and and could keep going uh, for uh, quite some time. But before that, you you've mentioned partnership a number of times, and again, to fill in uh, a little bit of color for uh, for our listeners, uh, it was just a month or so ago, maybe maybe a couple of months, that uh, the Royal Navy Royal Navy actually put together uh, its first carrier strike group. Uh, since I think it was the Falklands War and the first one in Europe. You, you had the Queen Elizabeth, you had, uh, with the partnership of an American ship and a Dutch ship, you actually put together a carrier strike group. This is, I, I think, the type of of uh, presence that you're talking about and ability that you're talking about. Yes, I mean, we, we've we had carriers just over 10 years ago. We then, we then, we then paid those carriers off. And then we've been investing in these brand new aircraft carriers. So two 65,000-ton aircraft carriers capable of taking 36 F-35 jets. And in a modern world, it's less about the numbers. It's more about the quality of the jets. And these are fifth-generation jets. And we think these are the best, you know, two of the best aircraft carriers in the world with, with some of the best jets in the world. And then as a capability, this is something that we have forged a, a, in, in the UK, a British design supported 20,000 jobs, has been assembled across four corners of the union, and there's been a springboard for thousands of apprenticeships. But the journey for us to come back to carrier strike and carrier aviation has been very much in partnership with both the US Navy and the US Marine Corps. And, and, and the, the journey that we've been on and the smoothness of that journey would not have been achieved without such a strong and faithful partner that we have in the United States of America. And now we're here and we can start to step out on the world. That means that we've got two aircraft carriers and it means that we can fulfill an even stronger role in NATO. And and therefore, I'm in a conversation with my French opposite number uh, and, and how they employ their aircraft carrier. We're in a conversation with NATO and NATO in terms of its its shift and the way it's interpreting its role in the future through defence and deterrence of the Atlantic. And then it's the opportunity that we have to how we employ these carriers and and, and where do we where do we lay what's our posture as we as we go out into the world. And and it's the significance, I think, of a growing UK defence capability. And it's not just in the maritime sphere. The the Prime Minister's announcement was as much about modernising UK armed forces and responding better in space, so we increase our resilience in space, investing in cyber, investing in digital, and looking to modernise all of our armed forces. And the UK 
and the Royal Navy is on that journey as well. And we're starting to get a uh, a more capable, a more lethal, a more sustainable navy that we can then harness with our partners and allies, and 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 be an even more effective tool for a UK government. For Sea Lord, one final question, though I, I do want to give a, a a programming note since you've mentioned the partnership between the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy uh, and Marine Corps. Uh, in April, we will be uh, on the Pacific Century. We'll be interviewing Admiral Phil Davidson, who is our current commander of of Indo PACOM, and we will certainly be talking to him about, about this partnership and and the things that that you've mentioned and the capabilities that the Royal Navy uh, will be able to bring to the region as well. Now. You've talked a lot, uh, and it's it's a very much a, a maritime, a very much a naval discussion about partnership. You've, you've talked about the U.S., you've talked about Japan, uh, Australia, and India, and of course, those four have revitalized the Quad grouping. Uh, it, it started under uh, former President Trump, uh, and President o- uh, Biden has mentioned that that it will be a priority for his administration. Uh, they're already talking about some type of, of virtual meetings. Um, one of the core activities of the Quad has been naval exercises, um, often uh, sponsored by the Indians, Malabar, and the like. Uh, would you like to be part of that? Would you, do you think the UK has a role in in not turning the Quad into a pent, but having this very engaged partner of all four of them participate in what the Quad will be doing on the security and naval side going forward? So I think that is very much a policy issue and it's something that I ought to leave to, to ministers. And, and we can see what the language of the integrated review is in terms of the court. The piece at my level, which I, in a way I think is, 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 is almost more fundamental, is that when you describe those four nations and do we have shared values and shared interests and do we have the ability to work together as navies, as an expression of those shared values and interests, whether that's at the political level or whether it's at the tactical level as to how we can harness our collective force and in order to support our own policies, then that's that's how it feels. So even, even if we're not a formal member of the Quad, I think we've got the relationships, the interests, the historic ties as, 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 as uh, navies that are used to operating together that allows us to, to to be able to do that in the future. And that might need a formal policy frame in order to cement it more strongly if that's what our political class decide. But for me, I'm able to, to work with them at the moment. And it's it's under the, the, the umbrella of these nations that have shared values and interests and these, these strong navies that have a relationship that allow them to operate together and a... And, a, and an aspiration that we're going to operate even more closely together in the future. Well, I think that is that is the uh, the, the high point to end on. Uh, you know, certainly the idea um, that you know for the U.S. we've always essentially gone it alone in Asia, so to speak, with our Asian partners. But to bring in our our European partners, and particularly our closest security partner, our closest ally in the world. The UK and the Royal Navy with brand new aircraft carriers, with lethal destroyers and frigates and new versions coming on with, as you said, a 30% increase in uh, in tonnage and capacity coming on, uh, the incredible interoperability we have. 
you know, we face a lot of challenges in the Indo-Pacific. No one, no one doubts that. Um, but you have to have, I think, uh, you have to feel good and, and have hope, uh, about the ability that we're going to have to work closer together and, and certainly seeing, uh, the white ensign flying over, uh, you know, East Asian and, and Indo-Pacific waters along with the U.S. and Japan and Australia, something that, uh, is going to make a, a profound difference going forward. So for Sea Lord, Admiral Tony Radican, thank you so much for your time, for that overview, your thoughts, and for joining us on the Pacific Century. Thanks very much, Misha. That's all for now. We will come back uh, in another week and see you soon. So thank you very much from Misha Oslin for John Yu and the Pacific Century. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.